I invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning to Genesis. We're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 11. Before we jump into this, let's just pause for a moment and say thank you to our Lord. Father, we just, we just say thank you. You have given to us something infinitely precious. You have given to us the gift of your Son. As we sang a few moments ago, let us behold him, Lord. Let us look upon him. As we consider your word this morning, as you speak to our hearts, we pray your spirit would work here on this text, that you would illuminate the passage before us, that you would soften our hearts, that we would see you this morning in your word, Lord. God, we do long to behold you. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 11 this morning. Uh, it is my plan in the new year to resume in the book of Acts, uh, but uh, this morning I wanted to just take this, this time here between Christmas and New Year's to reflect on something uh, significant, something crucial, in fact, to the, great commis- the, to the Great Commission, to the Gospel, to you and me, and that is the gift of language, the gift of language. As I started off the worship service this morning greeting you, so now I say again to each of you, as best as I can in your native tongue, Merry Christmas, Feliz Navidad, Buon Natale, Yishvail Nein. No, no. Jeanette is looking at me. She's like, whatever was that? Joyeux Noel. Joyeux Noel. Okay, well, there you go. There's all my French friends out there. Thank you. Thank you. Foy Lichte Weihnachten. Schred dies Dovom. Gersien de Kersfis. Zalik cursed feast, and last but not least, Sengdang Kuala from China. I think I did that one the best out of all of them, aside from Merry Christmas. We all of us come from a unique part of the world. Uh, all of us have a language that we grew up learning, what we would refer to as a heart language. And not all of us grew up with that same heart language. One thing that sociologists will tell you that language is a crucial, crucial aspect of culture, that the tongue that we speak in not only shapes elements of our society, but as we learn to think in that tongue, as we learn to conceptualize and to put ideas together in that language, that language shapes us, which begs the question, why are there so many different languages? Why are there so many different tongues in the world today? And why did God do that? We know that the gospel is intended to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, go. And again, he says in Acts chapter 1, he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's just one problem with that. We don't all speak the same language. So where did this come from? And what can we learn by looking at Genesis chapter 11 about language? And I make this proposition to you this morning. Language is a powerful tool which God has in fact given to each of us for the purpose of drawing us closer to him and with his blessing closer to each other. Now, of course, we're called by God to pursue a better understanding of our own language as well as languages of others But this is not considered a punishment 
Rather, it's a blessing that God has given to us. Let's look, Genesis chapter 11. The text reads, there, the whole earth at this point in time has one language and the same words. That's verse 1. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, again, speaking the same language to each other at that time, using the same words, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. One thing I just want to draw your attention to in this passage, the author, the human author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is using a number of word plays all throughout this passage. When it says, come, let us make bricks, the literal rendering in the Hebrew is, let us brick bricks. This is something new that they've invented. This is something new that they've come up with. If you go to Israel today, it's apparent that about 98.98% of all the earth's rocks are in Israel. But if you travel a little further to Shinar there, you'll find on the plains of Shinar, there's no rocks to be found for whatever reason. There is lots of dirt, mud, clay. And so these individuals are industrious. They have settled here in Shinar. There are no rocks to be found. And so they coin a term, brick. Let us brick some bricks. Let us bake some bricks. And so they do. They burn them thoroughly. It goes on. Burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And however tall they made that tower, whether it was 100 feet or 150 feet, the Lord looks down from heaven, and it's not that big as far as he's concerned. Again, you see, you detect a little bit of the humor in the original language of the scriptures here. It says the Lord came down, and he had to really stoop low. The meaning of this Hebrew word is he really had to descend all the way down to the earth just to get a look at this magnificent, grandiose tower that mankind was building. So the scripture continues, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse, Hebrew word balal, let us confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel, Babel, or Babel, or Babel, as it's translated into your English translation. Babel, because there the Lord Balal their language. You notice, the, again, the wordplay. There he confused their language. Babel, or Babel, Babel, as it's said in Hebrew, is what we would call an onomatopoeia. It's a word that is intended to sound like what it is. Babel, that's gibberish. The Lord turned their language into gibberish. And you see this wordplay, Baval, Balal. He confused Balal, their Balal, their languages. Interesting passage in the Hebrew. Interesting construction. I want to take you back to verse 1. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same Words. Now, that in and of itself is a remarkable, just a remarkable statement. 
What we see here in Genesis chapter 11 is that the real division, the real thing that divides us from one another is not physical. It's not even racial. What really divides us from one another isn't our geography. It isn't the town we grew up in. What divides us is the language we speak. The divisions that exist amongst mankind are not racial. They are not geographical. They are linguistic. And so other barriers that we have which can separate us, you'll notice today are largely inconsequential. You can get it on an airplane and you can fly anywhere four hours and be in a totally different country. Or if you can go in 14 to 24 hours all the way around the world. Geographical and physical barriers are no longer impediments to the interaction of people. But you jump on a plane and you land in Thailand or Vietnam or somewhere like that, though you can get there with relative ease, You really can't get there unless you learn their language or they learn your language. It is language that is the divider of people. And all of this poses to us the question, where did language come from? The evolutionists cannot explain it. It doesn't matter whether you read Chomsky to Darwin to Hawkins or any of the other popular evolutionists. When presented with the question, how do you account for the development of language apart from God, all atheists, all evolutionists are at a complete loss. There are some ideas which are floated out there, but they are all largely dismissed as pure bunk. And the reason for this is that language is something that is completely unique to you and me. It's not something that animals have. You and I are able to talk in language that is conceptual, that forms ideas, both concrete as well as abstract. Whereas if you look at the language of animals, animals, they do sort of appear to have a language, but at best, it's emotional. They can communicate a general feeling or a general disposition to each other, But in terms of actually sitting down and thinking together how they're going to engineer something or build some grand monument, animals don't have the ability to conceptualize that way, and they certainly can't communicate to each other in that capacity. And evolutionists are at a complete loss. Because if it is true that we all came from some single-celled organism somewhere, and that animals are no real they're not really different from us, they're just different in terms of they need a few more million years of evolution to develop, The question is, why don't we see language in some more complex form, in some middle evolved state amongst animals? But it's even more fascinating than that. You've heard of the so-called wild children, or they're also known as feral children. Uh, Children who, for reasons largely unknown to us, were either abandoned or somehow stranded out in the wild and miraculously were adopted by wolves or other creatures and and were raised in the wild. There are dozens of accounts of this happening now. And when these so-called wild or feral children are studied, having spent 5, 10, or in some cases 15 years living amongst wolves or other creatures, they find that these children who have grown into adolescence or adulthood have no language. They don't have language. There is an account of a girl in Russia, in Siberia, Oksana Malaya, who was abandoned by her drunk parents to the doghouse. They lost track of her one night, being too drunk to notice where she had gone. She managed to find her way into a doghouse and completely begot, forgotten by her parents. 
was raised by dogs in the kennel not more than 100 meters from the farmhouse where she was born. A social worker discovered her when she was 12. She had no language. She acted exactly like a dog in every respect. And when they brought her into care and tried to educate her, they were able, over a long period of time, they were able to teach her language But she was always, and to this day, would tell you, most comfortable acting like a dog. To form speech is a struggle for her. Other, two other examples, you may have heard of Kamala and Amala, also known as the wolf children, discovered in 1920 in the jungles of Godamuri, India. Girls were found, Uh, one was aged six, the other was aged 11. It wasn't known whether or not these girls were from the same family. It wasn't known how it was that they came to be together living in the same wolf pack. But what is fascinating is you have two girls that spent anywhere from from, uh, four to eight years together in a wolf pack being raised by wolves, two human beings living together, and they never spoke a word between the two of them. They never spoke a word. Human beings living together, do not naturally develop language. That's significant for sociologists. In fact, in-depth studies that have been conducted show that language is not something that you just develop. It's not something that you just, over time, gradually come up with on your own. Out of all of the different examples we have of kids being raised in in the wild uh, amongst animals, there is not a single instance of them ever having developed or evolved or come up with on their own any sort of discernible language. Not even when you have two of them raised together in the same environment. Sociologists have concluded, based on brain scans, looking at infants and child development, that kids learn language from their parents. As mom and dad talk to children, they pick up on those sounds They learn their language that way. Further research has shown that this has to be always how it develops. Our brains simply don't have a mechanism for inventing language. We learn it from our mom and dad. So we trace it back. I learned how to speak English from my mom and dad. You learned how to speak English from your mom and dad. Where did they learn it from? They learned it from their moms and dads, your grandparents. Where did your grandparents learn it from? Their moms and dads, so forth and so on, going all the way back to the beginning of time, which begs the question then, who taught Adam and Eve to speak? Based on all of our understanding, Adam and Eve weren't just born magically able to speak. Could have been that way. It also could be that God was the one who taught them how to speak. In fact, we see something really interesting in Genesis chapter 1. If you go back and you reread the Genesis account, you find that as God is creating over the six days of creation, he says, let there be light, and there is light. He says, let there be animals, and there are animals. Let there be birds and fish, and these things just are. And then he comes to man, and something truly unique happens. Rather than just simply saying, let there be man, he has a conversation God speaking amongst the triune Godhead, talking amongst himself, amongst the three persons. They say, let us make man in our own image. 
Man is created as a result of a conversation that takes place within the Trinity. And what's even more fascinating, it goes on, that God then speaks to man. And all the other creatures, he says, let them go forth and multiply and produce after their own kind. He says that. But when he comes to man, he speaks directly to man. He speaks to Adam. And one of the things he says is, go forth and name the animals. A conversation takes place between God and Adam, a conversation that does not take place at all recorded for us amongst God and any of the other creatures. God speaking to Adam and then instructing Adam and sending Adam forth with a language, as it were, to further develop that language, to further identify the other creatures around him in all the world. He takes a language that God has given him and he further expands upon it and develops it But ultimately, the language is given to him by God, taught to him by God. And that's fascinating. Because then we come here to Genesis chapter 11, and all the earth now has emerged from the ark, the descendants of Noah. They have settled here in Shinar. And the Bible records for us that they have one language, that they use the same words and they're further developing those words. Let us brick bricks. Let us make bricks. Let us take this mud that we have and let's burn it somehow and turn it into a brick from which we can then build a tower. They have one language. They're developing that language and they're using it to come up with a plan that is ultimately dishonoring to the Lord. Look at what the text says. Says they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They said, We don't want to actually scatter. What was God's command? Go forth, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. God's direction was clear. You guys are to spread out. You're to scatter over all the face of the earth. You're to turn this world into something. And these people, having emerged from the descendants of Noah, having come from the ark, they stop there in the lands of Shinar. They say, we don't want to do that. We want to stay here. They all have one language, and they have a plan. We're going to build a tower in order to make our name great. We're going to make ourselves famous. We're going to build this magnificent tower, and we're all going to stay right here in this city. They are using language. Listen to me. Point number one. Language is the source of unity, but they are using the tool of language, this gift that God has given them, in order to defy the purposes of the Lord, which means the Lord is now about to take that gift of one language away from them. Look at what it says next. Verse five, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are, notice the issue. God diagnoses it precisely. They are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God is looking at the power of language, this, this tool that he has given to mankind that draws us together, that unites us, and he sees that we're using this gift for wicked purposes. And he sees the potential now, if we can all speak the same language, and if our hearts are radically opposed to God and we do not want to obey him, this tool that he has given us is going to be used by us to continue doing further acts of evil and wickedness. God sees all of that, and his solution is, well, I'm just going to have to take that tool away. And that's exactly what he does. Come, verse 7, let us go down and there confuse their language, balal. Let us balal their language so they may not understand one another's speech. The Lord does that. And he scatters them over all of the world. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord balal, their language, of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. He continues to accomplish his purposes. Now, when we look around the world this morning, and even as we've engaged here in worship this morning, I have greeted you some eight different languages. I have brothers and sisters in Christ here in this room from French Quebec, from Spain, from Italy. My Italian friends aren't actually here this morning, but you know who I'm talking about. We have China, we have uh, Dutch, we have all sorts of different people, and I'm sorry, I probably butchered half of those greetings this morning. This is not my heart language. I made a valiant effort. We have different languages. God did it. And what you might not recognize is this is incredibly unique. See, there are many myths in many different cultures all around the world which contain within their creation account some reference to a great worldwide flood. Flood myths are common from the Bronze Age into Neolithic prehistory. There are accounts which depict a flood many times global in scale. Many of these accounts in these different cultures They attribute the flood to some sort of a deity, some sort of an angry god or something to that effect. And they also say that it was the deity's purpose to destroy civilization. Many African cultures have an oral tradition of a flood from the Kwaya people to the Mabuti to the Maasai to the Mandan. The Sumerian creation myth uh, from Sumeria mentions a flood. And of course, perhaps the most famous is the Gilgamesh flood myth from the Enuma Elish, which is the ancient Mesopotamian account of civilization. All of these different cultures from Peru, South America, over to Africa, Europe, they all have within their most ancient documents a reference to some sort of a flood account. But not one of these cultures has any reference to the confusion of languages. Now think about that for a second. Let's put it all together. Language is not something that we develop. We have to be taught how to talk by our moms and our dads. Many cultures all around the world claim, to some extent, to have come from some sort of cataclysmic flood, which we know from the Bible is the flood of Noah. And yet only one ancient document bothers to take the time to say how it was that we all came to a different language. No one can deny that we have a different language. I've used many of them this morning. 
Yet, how did we actually get there? And this is an explanation which no atheist or evolutionist has. There is no way to provide that answer for you. But it tells us something more about this biblical account. In Genesis chapter 11, they all just sort of wake up one morning and they aren't able to understand each other. And as a result, they, set, they sort of stick with the people that they can understand and those people tend to wander off and stick to themselves. This is what's happening. And, and yet, although all of these different people groups thought it was important in their history and their tradition to write down something of the flood, apparently they didn't think it was important or interesting enough to write down the fact that they all used to speak the same language. It, it almost seems, as we're looking at the evidence, as we're looking at the data, that they all just woke up one morning and realized that they didn't speak the same language as each other, and for some reason didn't think that was important. They just sort of wandered away, not able to communicate anymore. We can't be exactly sure what happened, but it appears that in some sense, God also altered their perception of the event such that they didn't seem to remember that, oh yeah, I could talk to these people just yesterday. That whole event is miraculous. They just woke up, couldn't communicate, and dispersed, never thinking it was significant. But of course, God thought it was significant. And it is recorded for us here in Genesis chapter 11. God spreads mankind out across the earth to continue his purposes. And he gives us all a language that is unique to us, but not in an individualistic sense. We are not exclusive. We have other people that have been assigned to the same language. We are not alone, but we are unique. And the purpose for these unique gifts, these unique blessings of language, is that God would drive us to various parts of the earth, that we would come from different places all over the globe, that we would be scattered around the globe. The purpose that God has in this is not ultimately that we would be divided from each other, but that we would not be united in wickedness against the Lord. Notice this second point. Not all division is from Satan, and not all unity is from God the Father. Point number one, language is a unifying and a dividing tool. Point number two, God divides us by dividing our languages, which means this division is intended for our blessing, for our good. God is working here, scattering his people over all the earth. We see then that language is his gift to us, but we also understand that the gospel calls us to learn other people's languages, to proclaim the good news. You see, God's purposes in scattering us is that he would one day reunite us, not by means of our language, but by the cross. Something that all four gospel accounts record is that when Jesus was crucified, all four of these guys, whether you're looking at Matthew or Mark, or the Gentile historian Luke, or John. All four of them record that when Jesus was crucified, there was an inscription, a sign that was nailed on the cross above him. 
And that that inscription and that sign read in the three languages that would have been common, not only to the world, but to that particular region of the world, in Greek, in Hebrew, and in Latin, it was recorded, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. All four gospel writers mention that small detail. And the reason why is because it's not a small detail. Crucified at a road leading into a city, posted a sign above his head in every language available to all of the people who would have, who would have been visiting that city at that particular time. Jesus is orchestrating that the gospel would go out to all of these different languages. Understand that when Christ dies on the cross, the salvation that he brings to the world is not restricted to the Jews, is not restricted to the English-speaking people, is not restricted to one particular tribe or one particular nation. It is intended to go out to all the nations to be spoken in every tongue amongst all people groups. And this is clearly illustrated for us by divine providence, the sign being posted over the cross, and it is further directed by the Father through the Son as he gives us the great commission to take this good news to the ends of the earth. Language divides us, but the gospel, Jesus Christ, is the one who can bring us back together. It leads us to consider more carefully this idea of language, though, as Christians. When we use language, are we using it for his glory? If you stop to think about it, all of the abuses of language, they dishonor him. Whether we're calling people names or swearing or cursing, these are tools, words that have been given to us to communicate with each other. And do we use those words to communicate with each other in a way that points each other back to the cross? Or do we communicate with each other in a way that distracts from the cross? I mean, if you look at Pentecost, we have an amazing miracle recorded for us there in which Jesus has ascended to heaven. The gospel has been released to go out to the nations and people are gathered around for the feast of Pentecost and we have the disciples of the Lord. They begin speaking, as it says there, in tongues. And the response of the crowd is, hey, we're from different parts of the world. We're from all over. How is it possible that we are able to hear each one of us in our own language this wonderful message that these guys are proclaiming? And sometimes in church, we take the gift of language and we use it in other ways that are dishonoring to the Lord. In fact, this very gift of language, this gift of tongues is sometimes used to portray to others some sort of a heightened sense of spirituality that somehow we've arrived somewhere in our walk with the Lord that others haven't arrived because we've been given a special language to speak to God in. We see this quite often in Pentecostal or charismatic churches. We have a reminder, though, from the Apostle Paul. Paul makes a really great statement. He says, I thank God that I speak in more languages than all of you. This from 1 Corinthians. Nevertheless, in church, that is the worship service that we have here today, I would rather speak five words, five words, with my mind than 10,000 words in another language. He goes on, brothers, don't be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, and he's quoting Isaiah, this is actually from Isaiah 28, in the law it is written, 
by people of a strange tongue and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, referencing Israel. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And Paul makes this wonderful concluding statement. Tongues or languages, the ability to speak miraculously in other languages, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now these are all comments regarding language. We learn something about language. Paul makes a statement, let your speech be seasoned with salt that you may be able to give grace to those who hear you. Paul also makes the statement, let us not lie to one another, but let us speak truth with one another. Over and over and over again, we see that this gift is intended as a gift to draw us closer to the Lord and through Christ, closer to each other. I don't know if you've spent time in the youth group lately. I haven't really either. I do try to talk to our teenagers from time to time when I encounter them in the hallway. Do you know, this is just a guess, I don't have any scientific data to prove this, but do you know probably what the number one most common statement is that teenagers make? I'm sure you do. When I say it, you're going to laugh. I don't know. Not, I don't know. That's not what they say. It's, listen carefully, I don't know. I don't know. Or, second most common statement, whatever. Some of you are laughing. You know this is true. But now let's think about this. I'm looking at you, brother. I'm looking at you. And you over there, brother, I'm looking at you. Not you, Mr. Mike Black, the fellow behind you. And I see a few up there in the balcony as well. God has given you language to speak to your friends, to speak to your mom and dad, to be able to communicate. That is a gift that God has given you. I cannot begin to tell you how many times when I sit down and I talk to teenagers, when I, when I get those opportunities, rarely, but I do get them from time to time, they say to me, they communicate in this idea of loneliness, this idea that no one understands them, this idea that they're just misunderstood and there's no sense in trying because nobody bothers to take the time to communicate. And I'm here to tell you with love, brothers and sisters, that's false. I have on multiple occasions tried to communicate with you and I have seen many other adults in this church try to communicate with you and when they take the time and when they invest and they sit down and say, tell me, how was your day? You respond with, I don't know. (laughs) Do us the kindness of at least putting three coherent syllables together. I don't know. Now that's a rebuke, but I say it with love. I do. I don't know why you're laughing over there. (laughs) And adults. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, where is he going with this now? God has given us the gift of language that we can speak to each other, that we can use it to praise the Lord, speak to each other, and also talk to our young people. The expression has been said many, many times over the course of many, many decades. Children are there to be seen, but not heard. Why do you suppose that our teenagers feel like they're isolated and all alone? Granted, when we do try to talk to them, they say, I don't know, or whatever. 
But why do you think they really come to this idea that nobody's really interested in them? You're the mature one. You're the one that has been socially developed. You're the one, in fact, that's teaching your kids whatever language it is that they're using. So it's incumbent upon us to use our language in a way that we draw out the heart of our young one. We're the socially mature one with the fully developed vernacular. They're the ones still growing, still developing, and they have not learned the discipline of articulate speech yet. Do we encounter their laziness and respond to it with a laziness of our own? I think for some of us that's true. They say whatever, you say, yeah, whatever. They're like, I don't know. You're like, yeah, you don't know. How true is that of us? Language is a huge gift that God has given to us. Not that we would somehow isolate ourselves from our peers and portray ourselves as somehow more spiritual through the gift of tongues. No, language is a gift that God has given to us to unite us together for the purposes of providence and salvation. He has given to us distinct gifts, distinct gifts of language to drive us to all different parts of the earth. But we know from the cross that it is the purpose of Jesus to draw us together, regardless of whatever language we speak, regardless of whatever tribe or nationality we come from. The book of Revelation tells us that there is a day coming in which we will all, regardless of whatever language we speak, we will all be praising the Lamb In Revelation chapter seven, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and every language standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, which each one of us, when we are there on that day praising the Lamb, we will say to the Lamb for some of us in English, others of us will say al Cordero, al Angelo, al Lagnu, Zum Lam, Yegneneko, Nadilam, Duzu Yang. We will hear all these languages praising Jesus and the promise we have is that while we will sing to the Lord in our own heart language, and they will sing to the Lord in their own heart language, no more will language divide us. And since that is the truth of the gospel, let us make every effort walking into 2020 to not let language continue to divide us. Let Christ draw us together in the cross. Church, bow with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, for its clarity. We thank you, Lord, this morning for the many missionaries who labor so faithfully to take your word and to carry it to different people groups and different tribes around the world. I'm reminded this morning, Lord, of Roman and Vicki Gehring, who are working so faithfully to translate your word into the Hazara people language. 
Father, we thank you that they have succeeded in translating the New Testament and are working even now to complete portions of the Old Testament. We pray, God, you would speed their efforts. That people who are created in your image amongst the Hazara in Afghanistan would have the blessing of getting to know your son who died for them. God, we pray for our neighbors. We tend to look sideways across our driveways and cul-de-sacs at folks who we think are weird because they don't talk like we talk here in church. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn their language, to communicate to them in a way that is meaningful, that we would be faithful to proclaim the gospel to them. And Father, as you draw all of us here together at First Baptist, I'm thinking of our Chinese friends. I'm thinking of our Dutch friends. I'm thinking, Lord, of folks who come from French Quebec, folks who come from Italy. Lord, we thank you that the gospel has drawn us together despite our differences. You are glorious for that, Lord. I pray that we'd celebrate those differences. And I say thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who don't know English naturally. It's not their heart language. But so long to worship with your people that they learn the English language for all its difficulties and intricacies. Thank you for that blessing. Lord, let them be an example to all the rest of us that we would communicate heart to heart using this tool, this gift of language that you have given to us. And for it, we say thank you. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name.